Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I am joined as ever by my co-host, Will. Hi Patrick, how are you doing? I'm grand. I'm doing very well. I'm really enjoying our, our Tokyo uh, duo episode. Is that a word? What? A, well, yeah, a mean, duo episode? A two-parter episode? <laughs> I'm not surprised you're enjoying it. You're, you did lead us into it. So, so far, yes, you've been yeah, enjoying because yeah. it's your research. <laughs> well, but also because I had so much fun uh, researching the ninjas uh, of season two fame um that was a really and I, I you know i don't really know a huge amount about uh japanese history but it's so interesting and Isn't so it? i mean you mentioned this and we mentioned this last week as well but it's just like this kind of parallel society and civilization that has grown and is just as advanced as ours is today but went a slightly different way but is some way the same as us because we're two islands on either side of a massive continent it's all just it's all cool stuff it is cool stuff. I like that idea that we're sort of two islands that sort of straddle the Eurasian yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mainland. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's really and cool. just absolutely brutalise the, the mainland because of our slightly imperialistic tendencies. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, like, it's not it's not great. And also, we won't dive too much. I'm very okay, you know, uh, throwing colonial Britain under the bus, but I don't know as much about uh, Imperial, Imperial Japan. Japan. We're certainly brutal, but it's not our place to be uh, like shitting on them. No, S- slight, no connection slightly to harder to do it. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. This week, I am handing over the reins to Will. Uh, but before we jump into that, I just want to remind you that we do have uh, an Instagram account at the Cloak and Dagger. No, is what is it at the? <laughs> At, there's at, no the. I was every time I'm like, is there no the or is there no podcast? And then I realise after, of course they have to say podcast every time. Um, sorry. At Cloak and Dagger Podcast, uh, where we put up uh, images and extra information or bonus clips and stuff like that. There's some quizzes that Will dutifully does uh, quite often <laughs> that you can that you can take part in. So you can get some really interesting stuff there. And please, uh, if you're listening to us, wherever you're listening to us on podcasts, you can leave us a review or just send us a message or just tell a friend. And it really helps the, the podcast out. But today... As I said, I am handing over the reins to Will to tell us about another part of Tokyo's history, or I guess Edo's history, because neither of us are doing it during the time when it was called Tokyo. That's so true. Thanks, Patrick. I can't wait to get into it. Um, let's get started. So, as Patrick said, uh, I am taking over for this week, and I am also going to be talking about the uh, the city of Edo, commonly known now as Tokyo, but as we said last week, only the last, I think, 150 years of its history has it been known as Tokyo, which means the eastern capital. Um, before that, it was known as Edo, and has was Edo from the 10th century all the way through to the 18th 50s i think or maybe the 1860s so right. it is edo in my period so from now on when you hit edo think tokyo <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so yeah edo um where i will be taking us this week will be still in the time when the tokugawa shogunate uh, are still in power but unlike last week where patrick was telling us about uh, a time of great peace and prosperity which led to organized crime which obviously isn't the best thing in the world um not really I, I am going to the other end of the Tokugawa shogunate chronologically to the very end of the times. And the problem with the ending of shogunates is they never end well. So, well, (laughs) no no regime ends well, does it really? No, it really doesn't. Um, So this is a time of a very bustling city. But we're talking about uh, where I will be taking us will be into the sort of 1800s, probably around the 1850s. That's kind of the period 1853 to be precise. Um, But I thought I'd just quickly um, explain a little bit about the city that we have been talking about uh, in Mm. terms of what it actually visually looks like. And then I'll take us into the walkthrough and we'll go from there. So settle in, listener. Hope you got a cup of tea and a biscuit. You really like saying settle in, listener. (laughs) I do, because I always think when I'm listening to a podcast, which I know is going to be a long one, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I just need to sort of prepare. You need to get get ready. You need to get into it. Yeah, yeah. All this is just preamble while you're, like, making your tea or... Or, or you know, getting the iron set up. Yeah, yeah. Or you've just... You put the leash on the dog and you're just out the door. You know, it's... You know, you're getting set up for it. Whereas now we're into the the meat of the episode. Yeah. 
We're limbered up now. <laughs> yeah. So as we mentioned last week, Edo began life really as a massive castle, which then became, it kind of went village, then massive castle, and then full-on city. To make yeah. it really broad brush, that's how it worked. <laughs> um, it was really built, though, in the, in the early years of the 17th century because uh, the Tokugawa shogunate uh, saw in a period of major peace, which meant there was loads of money which wasn't being spent on war. So suddenly, uh, the Tokugawa shogunate under Ieyasu, or Tokugawa Ieyasu, um, started to rebuild, well, he started to build his capital right here at Edo. And wow, did they do a good job, because where hmm. it is, it's, as I said last week, it's in the middle of a bay. And the problem with bays is there's a lot of flooding all the time, just natural mm. flooding, just with the seasons. Yeah. And what the, the city planners did was they reclaimed a lot of the land from the bay because the bay is quite a shallow. It's not a steep bay. So by, by right. holding back not deep the, water. Yeah. Yeah. By holding back the water, you actually get a lot more land back. So they did that, which I think is really cool. Um, they also built in ma- massive canals and sort of defensive moats. And they even diverted the Hirokawa River because they realized that the Hirokawa River had such a vast floodplain that they couldn't control that. So instead, they were like, wow. well, fuck it. Let's just move the river. Let's change nature. You know, Bloody hell. Wow. They really are powerful, aren't they? This is what you can do with when you have one central government force, isn't it? You have everything centralized. They're like, yeah, we'll just move the river. We can do that. Well, yeah. And also because war, war tends to be times where you have massive innovation because you're trying to beat your enemy with the latest technology. Yeah. So suddenly you've got this vast amount of knowledge and skilled sort of siege engineers who suddenly have to turn their minds to civil engineering. So I think mm. that's kind of why it happened, I, I think. I never thought about that. But yeah, engineer is something that's useful in both time periods. And actually, if you get a boon through war, because they're really useful in war, that carries forward into peacetimes. And you've got all these exactly. engineers who are like figuring out. Because it's all, you know, it's it is all breaks down to maths and mechanics and stuff like that that can be applied to anything. It doesn't have to be for warfare. No, it really doesn't. Um, so there was one problem, though. By moving the Hirokawa River, it kind of dried up all of the uh, <laughs> the good water. <laughs> so like, uh, what they were getting was a lot of brackish water because, as I mentioned last week, Edo Bay, which was a huge... I mean, it is a huge bay. It's 580 square miles. Because it's an ocean-going bay, it's mm. salt. It's, it's salt. Obviously, it's yeah. Salt bay. yeah. Salt bay, obviously. Salt um, bay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, so th- what they did was they eventually came up with a wooden pipe system. Yes, wooden to pump mm. the water from another river to the west of the city to get the water into to, to help. So it wasn't exactly an easy beginning. No. So uh, would this go underground or over the air like an aqueduct? Underground. And it was still oh. being used, parts of it, up to the 20th century. <gasps> wow. So they Good engineers. Very well. Yeah. Out of wood. And it survived yeah. underground. I have no idea how. But that's I mean, maybe they maybe they are constantly replacing it, and you know, you know, the upkeep was probably quite killer. But I guess maybe treated wood could survive quite a long time. Possibly, I don't know. Who knows? We don't. Um, anyway, let's now talk quickly about the layout of this new city. So, of course, in the very heart of it, you have Edo Castle, which stands at the highest point on the landmass and has been built up over the centuries. Because a lot of uh, castles in Europe are the same. They are built on top of old hill forts, which are built on top of, you know, there's so many different fortifications. So it's the same thing with cities. Tall. You know, you you build where, you know, the people who came before you found a good spot and it is still a good spot. The geography doesn't change. So they're always going to build on top of it. I think that, you know, modern day, the, the Imperial Palace is built around Edo Castle. So yeah. it's it's the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and actually what the way they built the city was on uh, the similar lines of what Patrick was talking about last week with their class system. So un, so under the shogun, the shogun's citadel in the top of the castle, you then around it, you had just a huge swathe of really, really nice mansions which dominated, they were dominated by the militaristic samurai and then the daimyos and their families. Mm. And I looked into this, and it turns out that that bit that I've just described took up 70% of the whole city. Yeah, that's insane, isn't it? And it's partly isn't because, like, 
like they take up so much more room because their houses are huge but they're also there's a shit ton of the samurai like I, yeah. there, there was something i was reading where like that estimate i made in the last episode of i think in like 1720 they rose to about a million people the reason they think that is because they have on record that there were 500,000 uh, chonin which were the 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 class the two the artisan and the merchant class and i think a bit of the fisher and farmer class the kind of more peasant class they recorded them but they never recorded the samurai but it was largely <laughs> considered that there were just as many samurai in the city as the other classes so if you've got 500,000 chonin class you have 500,000 samurai Right. So there's a shit, and that's a lot. And if they're like the kind of the noble class that get the big, nice houses, they're going to take up tons of room. That's the thing. And uh, it's interesting that you just mentioned the shonin because I'm coming on to them because um, <laughs> the, the sort of normal people or shonin uh, lives mm. to the northeast of the castle. So that district to the northeast of the center was a highly densely populated area. Mm. So. As I said, 70% of the city is owned by samurai. So in that other 30%, you had the same population as there were in the, the other 500,000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's really interesting is uh, we were comparing a lot between European sort of models and and the Japanese model. And what I found fascinating was, unlike if you did that in a European city, the European city uh, sort of normal people or peasant classes, they hmm. are they tend to be in sort of slums or hovels in sort of sort of hu- like huts almost, yeah, like really yeah, jam packed yeah. together. That is not how Tokyo or Edo was built. So instead of that, they had a series. It, that whole area where the shonin were living was made up of a series of gated communities. Wow! So these communities would have guards on the gates. And they shared wells and had small shops in them. And they were basically like little compact communities, like we were talking about with Confucianism last week, like mm. how you have to bound together and it was all about the community. That that meant that the city's uh, sort of slum area was actually really well segregated and built in the way that it was sort of like planned out. And I really like that. That's really nice. It sounds yeah. like, yeah, it's planned as well. It was like the, the city planners took that into account, whereas in a lot of European cities, the cheaper areas, the slums, they're not planned. They kind of grow organically as people from the countryside flock to cities in Absolutely. times of war just, or at any time. And they kind of just find, you know, they find a bit of land that they'll start sleeping on, build a hut and build from there. Whereas this place sounds like the shogun and his samurai administrators were like, no, we're going to map out where we're putting these people because in their class system, although they are beneath them, they still have a certain amount of respect for them, which isn't yeah. really the same in Europe. You know, the peasants got almost no respect from the noble upper class. They would, you know, curs to be beaten and used whenever they wanted. Quite. It is quite interesting. And I, I just thought that is a lovely sort of image as well, that they have this sort of guarded system. Or maybe they were sort of guarded because they didn't want people getting out rather than getting in. I don't know. Yeah, there's maybe there's also you know a double-edged sword of those guards on every street corner for your own protection, but also yeah. to really highlight how difficult it is to resist. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe yeah. So they're up in the northeast, right? And then to the to the due east of the castle lay the massive rice warehouse district where most of the city's food supplies were kept and traded. A bit like last uh, last week, Patrick was talking about how um, lots of farmers would um, have to bring their produce to the daimyo, and then the daimyo yeah. would decide whether or not to give the food back. Well, most of what the daimyo takes goes into these massive warehouses, and especially mm. around uh, Edo. This is uh, the thing. So that's kind of where the, the rice supply is for the city. And as I say, they've got the piped-in water. So you've got the rice, you've got the water, you've got... Um, You've got, got house. you know where the samurais are, samurai are, you know yeah. where Edo Castle is, and you know where the shonin are living. Uh, but the final thing I wanted to mention is that uh, the major bridge in the city, because when you think of, you know when you kind of think of, say, London, because I'm from there, or hmm. because we're English, um, you kind of think of, okay, London Eye, Big Ben, maybe the Shard, in terms of cityscape, like city, city skyline, they're kind of yeah, the things yeah, that yeah. pop into your head. With this time period, the things to look out for in Edo are obviously the castle at the top. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is a bridge called the Nihon Bashi Bridge. 
And that was the bridge that spanned the greatest, it was in the center of the city. And it was where the greatest amount of merchants were built up and there was lots of trade going on. Mm. All the ships that were coming in from the bay would stop there. So if you were entering the city, you would get there and then hop off and then you'd be in the city. It was uh, a yeah. bit like London Bridge, actually, in the old yeah. days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, I'm trying to think of all the other um, bridges in... One of the really big bridges in Constantinople, and it was a is it's a big deal. Or the the one in Florence. There's a lot of really important bridges. Ponte Vecchio, yeah, yeah, yeah that's are. what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, a final thing to say though is, uh, although uh, it was kind of more organised, the sort of where the Shonin were living, it is actually qu- quite interesting that they put place them in the northeastern section of the city because in Japanese mythology and sort of folklore. The northeast corner of a city was always considered to be dangerous. Oh, like I don't that's know why. So weird. I had a look and I couldn't quite work it out. But basically, because of that, they built the city planners built lots of temples there to protect it from evil. But if you think about it, they oh, put so- the lowest classes as yeah, a sort of yeah, buffer yeah. zone in the northeast <laughs> corner, and then sort of put up all these temples to sort of insurance for the shonin. So, so that doesn't work. <laughs> it's danger from spirits and monsters, not just dangerous from people. No, no, yeah, spirits, monsters, and bad luck, sort of like wow. ill fate. Yeah, But that's also where they cram most of the populace, or g- like the largest chunk like it's such a way, it's such an annoying thing that you take so many people and force them into the worst part of the city, or theoretically well, only, the worst part of the city. Well, only theoretically, yes, only in the might, in the spiritual way. But also, we're not living in an equal society. Seventy percent of the city is owned yeah. by the samurai, who, who don't need seventy yeah. percent of the city. To but live. you know what's also really annoying? Because a huge amount of uh, law around samurai swords is, even if you don't use them, they are a protection against evil spirits. And at this oh. time, only samurai were allowed to wear swords. So they're really throwing these peasants under the bus. <laughs> they're forced into the most dangerous, spiritually uh, dangerous area of the city. And they're not allowed swords to protect themselves against these evil spirits. Yeah. What a chip. This is awful. I mean, I I'm know. not surprised, but, you know, it's, it's such a <laughs> dick move. The final thing I want to mention before I go on to the walkthrough is that if Edo is known for anything other than being the capital of Japan, it is for its fires. Now, there are some absolutely stunning statistics about the, the, sort, of, the sort of ill fate of Tokyo and Edo. Um, mm. Between the years of 1601, basically since it was sort of founded as a proper city, and 1867, Edo had 49 great fires. Think Fire of London, that sort of scale, 49 of them in 266 years. God. That's just just (laughs) awful. That's those spirits. Those evil fire spirits. And no no one with swords to stop them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you think about it, as you said last week, their walls are made from paper and their structures are made from wood. So it's like, Mm. hmm, maybe not. I don't know. It's quite an interesting one. But still, I mean, there wasn't that many happening in European cities, and they were made out of wood and thatch, you know, straw roofs, which would go up really quickly. Is it wetter in where we grew up? As it's in, in wetter. Europe? It is also uh, more north, because actually you mentioned uh, last week if they're on the same latitude. I did actually check, and actually it's not quite the same. We're more northern than Japan. We just don't have it quite as cold as it should be because of the um, Gulf Stream. What's it called? The Gulf Stream. So maybe, but then Japan has these really wet, rainy seasons as well. But maybe I think places that have really intense rainy seasons tend to also have quite barren seasons as well. So maybe they should have long stretches where everything really dries up. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, so that's that. And final, the final quote, I mean, quote, stat I'm going to give you guys is between 1601 and 1945... Edo slash Tokyo was leveled every 25 to 50 years by either fires, tsunami, volcanic eruptions, or war. Fuck. So, like, so it was rebuilt that's over and over again. Yeah, it's constantly being rebuilt. I, I think this is the city that has the worst luck that we've come to, come across. Like, yeah, it just is constantly being sort of plagued by different things. If they believed in those spirits, as you say, that... You'd think you'd leave. 
Edo. They've done a bad job of stopping the spirits. They need to put those bloody samurai with all their swords to fight the spirits because clearly, clearly they've pissed off the spirits by forcing all these peasants to hang out there and they forcing really way more of them than they needed to. I mean, if they're just packing them in right where the spirits are chilling out, I think. I mean, they, I mean, as I say, they deserve really. it. But I also <laughs> imagine the the brunt of the damage will be felt by the the, the lower classes because. You know, they don't have these large, spacious houses which they can quickly run to the other side of the house and then escape if a fire hits. Or, and actually, northeast, no. does that mean they're, of course, quite close to the shore? So for tsunamis, you know, they're not high up close to the, the castle and therefore raised up. They'll get hit hardest. They will. They will. And actually, yeah. Japan is built on fault lines. So you are more, as we said, Kobe last week, where the mm, Yakuza... Yeah got involved anyway we're not going on to that Let's, so uh, maybe that's the thing even back then uh, during all these things maybe it was the uh tekia and bakuto early yakuza gangs right when the samurai and the daimyo and the shogun sitting up on top their mountain caring little for the peasants in their <laughs> their evil spirit-filled corner it was the yakuza who were there to pick up the pieces and help them rebuild <laughs> i feel like i'm really rewriting the story of yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have you been paid to mytholo- mythologize the uh, the yakuza? I've actually I've actually been paid by the what are they called the Yamaguchi Gumi or something the 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 really massive powerful yakuza gang of modern day. They've actually paid for this episode, so that's yeah. why you're getting a tattoo now. It all makes that's, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually getting lots more tattoos than that, <laughs> and I've got a Bentley outside as well. They really pay well. <laughs> wow, that's good. That's good. All right, let's get to the walkthrough. So, to take us on this walkthrough, uh, this stroll through the city, uh, will be a man of some importance named Ido Hiromichi. Now, Ido Hiromichi is actually quite a hard one to say, having said last week how easy it is to say these things. Um, Hiromichi is maybe a bit hard to get around, yeah. Yeah, uh, he was an important administrator uh, working for the ruling Tokugawa shogunate, uh, who controlled mm-hmm. all of Japan. Uh, he so his job it's kind of like imagine a daimyo but like on a much smaller scale he's like a mini boss so he's right. like given power over a little bit of wherever and then he's in charge of that bit and anything that goes of wrong of the city on, so, he, so he's in charge yeah, he's, of, the, of a district he is yeah so his main role was to control the entrance to Edo Bay which guarded the capital from any unwanted visitors ah so, okay so this would is, he have been I assume he's part of samurai class as well. Uh, he's more likely to have been um, a sort of, what's the word? Like a sort of minor daimyo family's retainer. So he doesn't right. actually have to be part of the class, but he's in the sort of hierarchy yeah. for it to be He's okay. not necessarily a full samurai, but he's part of that upper class that is the yeah. administrative, oh, definitely. And, you know, yeah, yeah, ruling class. And he, he doesn't walk around unaided, like he has uh, retainers if you like. Right, yeah, yeah. So he is important. But we're coming to the point in history, because uh, this day, which he's going to take us around, is the 8th of July, 1853. So we're really, if you compare that wow, to where yeah. we are in sort of English terms, that's sort of if Queen Victoria's on the throne. Mm, we're about mm. to go to war in Crimea with the Russians. So, like, it's that's kind of time period. Uh, so, you know, we're getting close to the modern day. But over here yeah. in Japan, it's still a feudal system in mo- in, in the most part. So, however, for our purposes, despite the fact that his sort of uh, his main role is right on the entrance to Edo Bay, he's actually uh, going to be called back to Edo to give a report on some strange activities seen by some of his men out in the sea, out in the ocean, in the Pacific. So, as he approaches the city from the bay, he can see Edo Castle standing tall at the centre of the bustling city, and mm-hmm. ahead of his ship the great Nihonbashi Bridge looms out of the morning mists. But the bridge is bustling with traders and workers already. So it's it's one of those sort of, not city that never sleeps things, but if you think about it, the people who make a city run, sort of the service yeah. people, they are long before dawn in order to mm, create. Mm. Because this is a city which is so 
dominated by a, uh, a ruling class. 70% of the land is owned by the ruling class. That you can't, you know, you, no one else is going to do those jobs except for these people. So anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to do and, <laughs> and only half the population to do it. Exactly. As he steps out onto the dock, his retainers use long wooden staffs to carve a path for their master through the crowded street. Oh my god. That's yeah. what just like prodding people and whacking them if they don't get if they don't get out of the way. Yeah, literally. And uh and Jeez. he mounts uh, his horse which he's taken on the ship. This apparently used to happen all the time. Um he mounted his horse. This poor horse probably felt seasick. Yeah. But he mounted his horse uh, to ride the short distance through the streets because he wanted to obviously be seen above the people. So and mm. normally he probably would have been raised up on a uh you know those chairs which are sort of covered for what you call them. Um, yeah, yeah, like um. Instead of those, uh, the 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 next best thing because he's in a hurry is getting on a horse because you couldn't own a horse mm. unless you were of some wealth. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Um, but as he's about to, um, he's sort of stopped, and he's a sort of man who isn't stopped often, and he's clearly irritated by this, and suddenly he he realizes why, and he sort of quells his anger because it's a procession of Buddhist monks in their flowing robes and incense bowls, uh. and they're leading a funeral towards the local temple. So it's... Oh, my uh, God. It's, it's like the people who beep at when the people aren't moving and then they quickly realise it's, it's, it's a funeral procession, it's a hearse up ahead, and they suddenly feel really bad. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, the monks are still playing a massive role, even in this militaristic zone. It's still a place where Buddhism and other, uh, other temples, uh, Shintoism as well, are still yeah. very prevalent. Um, so Hiramichi then, after the uh, the processions pass by, grasps his reins and begins the journey north towards the castle. He passes along fairly empty streets uh, with gates on either side guarded by sentinels, as I mentioned earlier. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it meant that uh, a lot of the sort of main thoroughfares aren't that busy, especially at this time in the morning, because everyone's still in their community gates trying to try to sort of like sort out their lives and then they'll only yeah. leave if they've got a purpose to leave to go to somewhere if you see what i mean so it's still um, early enough it's busy but not packed yet yeah as he nears the outskirts of the castle complex he passes into this much more spacious and tranquil area of the city with these large mansions long canals and large gardens which would have surrounded these mansions so as i said earlier these are the samurai this is where mm. the noble classes are living um, but yeah. however, there is also an unnerving number of armed soldiers at every turn. And the reason for that was that the daimyo families are, air quotes, kept by very close to the shogun to keep their uh, fathers or brothers sort of in line. Because yeah. if they ever rebelled, he'd just kill their family. So there's a sort of weird sense of hostility, but sort of relaxed... It's sort of like being in a gilded cage. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. They are they're highborn hostages in a way, but not yeah. called that because they want it to be. Oh yeah, you're just here to, you know, be part of the community, exactly. when actually you're there as insurance against your uh, family's honor and loyalty. Precisely. So finally, he reaches the castle gate and is immediately granted entry and taken up to the grand terrace of the castle, which overlooks Edo Bay. Mm -hmm. um, he is escorted into the presence of the chief of staff and basically the practical ruler of the country, Abe Masahiro, who you'll hear a lot more about later. Interesting. So not the practical ruler of the country, but not the shogun. Well, quite. Why isn't he seen mm. the shogun? Very it's his chief of staff who he talks to. Hmm. So as Abe, Abe Masahiro has lots of people around him, um, and before he can actually hand over his report... He hears what he thinks is a great thunderclap, which makes everyone jump on the terrace. And Hiramichi then panics because he's looked out into the bay, and there he can see four massive black ships, which certainly did not belong to the Tokugawa shogunates. And then Abe Masahiro turns around and also sees the ships, and all hell breaks loose. <gasps> My god. Ominous. Yeah. yeah, so who are these black ships? Who, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. I'm color me intrigued. <laughs> well, there you go. So let's do this. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. 
uh, just to answer your question about why is uh, the chief of staff of the shogun in charge, uh, Abe mm. Masahiro? What, what's happened to uh, the to the shogun? Well, this is kind of the problem with the Tokugawa shogun and the where it is in its history. After 220 years or so, there's been a lot of inbreeding because they like to keep the line pure. That's something they share oh, with their God. with their with their European things. So very Habsburg, yeah. All of this is the thing. All the Tokugawa uh, rulers are just either very ill or quite deformed, and they never last long. Really? So the current oh, ruler, God. yeah, the current ruler is the twelfth um, shogun since Tokugawa Ieyasu, and his name is Tokugawa Ieyoshi. But he mm-hmm. um, is a very, very ill man, and he actually won't live much longer than the day that in question. So, in oh in God. that vacuum, in that power vacuum, the chief of staff, Abe Masahiro, is basically in charge of the country. Oh Even my God! Though, this is yeah. weird dropping of power because technically the emperor is the one with the power, but has kind of become a figurehead for the shogun. But now the shogun has kind of become a figurehead and is no longer really wielding the power. It's this chief of staff. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And to what what makes this even more interesting, I think, is that um, something called the Sokoku Edict, which happens in 1635, has mm-hmm. a massive impact on those four black ships in the bay, because okay. the, the Sokoku Edict was um, well. First of all, let me explain. The um, in 1635, the Tokugawa shogun is in its infancy still. It's the third mm-hmm. shogun is on the throne. Uh, he is the direct grandson of Tokugawa Ieyasu, and his name is Tokugawa Iemitsu, just to yes. be confusing. I think he was, and, yeah, he he was around during uh, the stuff I was talking about last week. Precisely, yeah. Um, so he came to power in 1632, and by 1635, he's basically had enough of all foreigners in his country. <laughs> he's had, yeah, wow. seriously. He's had to put down a massive rebellion, which has basically been caused by Christ. Well, he believes has been caused by Christianity, because lots of mm. Jesuit priests have been inciting rebellion against the blasphemy that, which is, you know, you can't have a living God, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Bloody in, in Christians wandering around, ruining everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he then issues this thing called the Sokoku Edict, and that literally translates to chained country. That's what Sokoku means. Ah, yes. What happens is this. Literally, they close the borders of Japan. And of course, Japan's a a group of islands, so it's quite easy to do. Basically, Mm, mm. no Japanese people are allowed to leave, and no one is allowed to land on Japan's soil on pain of death. This isn't a sort of thing that you can... So, for instance, if a Japanese sailor was unlucky enough to be caught in, say, like a cyclone, which that part of the world is known for, Mm. it's like a water tornado, um, and is washed up on, say, the Korean mainland, he can never return to Japan. Oh, man. Or vice versa. A Korean sailor gets stuck in a cyclone and accidentally washes up on Japanese soil, suddenly realises... I can't. I, I need to get the hell out of here. So it's yeah. it's closed off. It's not even just closed off for European, you know, the bunch of annoying Europeans wandering through. Korea is also off limits, and the Korean people are no longer able to trade well, with Japan. Koreans are are not liked at all by uh, the Japanese anyway, so they don't really like them very much. True, but, but the French aren't liked by the English, and yet we always were trading with them. So we also went to war with them for a hundred years in a row. So 116 yeah, years in a row. But still, to con- to close an entire country, that's yeah. got to be fairly unique uh, across the world. To just have it, well, to just decide we are closed. Please come in, back again in the next 500 years. Well, this is the thing. In this time period, absolutely, it is unique. But actually, mm. the Chinese did it. One of the very first emperors of China closed off the country completely and ruled it as if wow. there was nothing beyond China. So that's cool. but that was ancient. You can't do that yeah. in a society that's becoming much more global. Or not society, yeah, yeah, a absolutely. world that's becoming more global. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seventeenth century, the world is getting smaller every day and the maps are being drawn all over the world. Everyone knows wherever it is. Well, this is the that's thing. And and actually, remarkable. um to be fair, I know some people might be listening who know their their revisionist history. And uh it wasn't really true in practice that it was completely locked off. Right. Because um, the Europeans were allowed to remain 
in the form of the Dutch East India Company on the island of Dejima, which is near Nagasaki. So they were literally on a ah. man-made island, a bit like Hong Kong, and they were allowed to trade across the water. But that was it. Right. It was just a narrow... So yeah, you've got this tiny little place where you could trade, but that's yeah. it. The rest of the country, in essentially, the, the, the country is closed. There's just yeah. this tiny little loophole area, but other than that... There are, there are two other loopholes, which I must mention because someone's going to tell me off. Um, Lots of the pedants other one, out there. The Tsushima Islands, Tsushima Islands, sorry, are the ones between Japan and Korea. And they mm. are too intermingled to completely shut off. So, like, ah, a, a more Korean island of Tsushima could talk to a more Japanese-prone island and then it could get across that way. Kind of. It thing. blends too much there, so it's difficult to really yeah. cordon off properly. And the final ones are the Ryukyu... Ryu, I can never get this right. The Ryukyu Islands, which are kind of a, a province of China. So they also have an, a sort of commercial enterprise with China. So that, right. again... But overall, as you say, for the common Japanese person, there was nothing beyond the borders of Japan that they wow. can access. So yeah, it really is. And it survives for 220 years. That's a mm. very long time, you know? Does it Does it perhaps end on a, a certain day? When was it? 18? <laughs> <laughs> 1853. How did you yeah, guess? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, but for one more funny thing about the Sokoku Edict is that the shogunate also made sure that no Japanese ships could be ocean crossing. Oh, wow. They made sure that the design of all ships had to include a massive hole in the aft of the hull, which is the bottom of the ship, so that ships are always slightly sinking. So you couldn't spend (laughs) days and days and days away from a port. That's so weird. It's just slow. But surely that would slow them down massively as well. Well, if it's all internal trade, why would that matter? It's just, I mean, oh, that's so weird. So to just quickly summarise, you've got an ailing, you've got completely weak emperors mm-hmm. with completely weak shoguns who are inbred beyond belief. Yeah. So it's the chief of staff of the sort of, of the shogun who is ruling the country, Abe, Abe Masahiro. Mm. Um, and you also have this isolationism, which is really dropping Japan way behind. And yeah. so far behind that within the Sokoku Edict, when, when it was produced in 1635, from the from when that happened, a whole nation, which is now the superpower on the planet, was born, which is the United <laughs> States of America, who have oh my a God, yeah. part to play with this story. Because who's just mm. come knocking into Edo Bay? The Americans. Those black ships. Oh my God, the Americans have arrived. Yeah, and this is this is the story. So it's about how the Americans basically crack open the oyster which is the Sokoku edict Japan into being a global world. Well they you know they learnt from the best, they learnt from their their parent country of us and learnt that the real way to build an empire and to build a country is just to find a, a foreign place, crack it open and steal all their stuff. That's the that's the British way of becoming a superpower and I guess America well, are now getting into it. Let's see what you think of the American strategy by the end of this, because it's right. quite interesting. And maybe the Americans should take some looks at this themselves before they plunder another country for whatever <laughs> yeah. whatever they fucking need. Um, but yeah, so just to give you a little bit of context and where the USA is by this period, in 1853, so in exactly the same time period, um, you've, had, you've just concluded the Mexican-American War. So they've just made... California has just joined as a state... I think right. it's in 1852, so this literally the mm-hmm. year before. Um, and it means that, and also Texas as well. So that's now been concluded. So they now have a Pacific coastline with a state on it because they've got territories uh. to the north. Um, but, you know, you're still pushing west. Um, the gold rush, the Nevada gold rush, the big one, I think happens the year after our chat yeah. on this. So it's very close by to all of this. Wow, that's um, so interesting. I mean, that's right around the, the, the Alamo hold out battle thing which i know vaguely about yeah 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 so it's is that time to it's so interesting yeah they not only have they unlocked the west of america which has all its bounties it means they've then unlocked the pacific ocean in that kind of regard they suddenly can look westward in that way they can although there are Mm. no deep water harbors built properly 
on that uh, coastline yet. So they, they do um, have what's called a Pacific Squadron, which is the Pacific Fleet. But it's a small it's a small venture at this point. Yeah. Because remember, in 1853, this is pre-American uh, Civil War. So you don't have... They aren't actually an industrial powerhouse yet. They're on their way no. to doing that. But, you know, only 33 years ago, not- uh, before this, you had the British had um, got the, the War of 1812. The British leveled the white house this is only 30 yeah. years after that yeah so yeah they're still they're not even because re- they're not even really a proper country they're a collection of states they are they are these united states as opposed to this united states that's not until lincoln when they start to become a bit more of a united country i mean i know they are kind of a country but i know that's a big thing that they consider themselves a collection of states as opposed to one uh, united country that's an interesting point i hadn't thought of mm. that yeah so um, let's uh, quickly uh, explain who has actually just blundered his way into the middle of Edo <laughs> society. Um, mm. This guy's name is Commodore Matthew Perry. Oh, now, classic but, Commodore. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wait, sorry, say that again. Commodore. Oh shit, Matthew Perry. <laughs> yeah, it's Chandler. Just Chandler <laughs> Bing from Friends. I have been studying this guy for so long and I had no idea. I didn't make that connection. Fuck it out. <laughs> wow. So, well, that's going to really throw off this story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, yeah. Okay. For those of you who don't uh, want to think of Matthew Perry as Chandler, this guy, Commodore Matthew Perry, was his mission, if you like, wasn't to invade Japan or bully Japan or anything like that. Right. No. He was actually sent by the 13th president of the United States uh, to present a letter to the shogun of Japan. That was okay. what it was. Now, in that letter was a list of demands saying, we want to trade with you. You need to trade with us to survive. Fucking do it. Kind of. Wow. Thing. So it's it's not a it's not a it's it's not an olive branch, really. It's it's a bit more aggressive than that. Yeah, it's a, it's sort of. Yeah, it's aggressive capitalism. And also, uh, I mean, it's very American because um, it's also to do with sort of manifest destiny. So it's bringing Christianity along with civilization, Western civilization, to oh, a wow. barbaric society. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's still that idea. Yeah. Wow. It's right in the heart of that time period when that's mm. happening. Um, but of course, Japan, although it might be sort of on its uppers at the moment, it's still a very sophisticated society. So it's not like, not that I'm not trying to, I'm not going to compare different cultures, but they're much more organized than, say, the Native mm. Americans that they, they were sort of dealing manifest destiny out to yes, on the day. Yes, yes, you know, yes. I mean, this... well, par- partly because, you know, the, the Japanese hadn't been absolutely decimated by disease. So there's a yeah. lot more of them. And they have, you know, powerful military states, which uh, the Native Americans, unfortunately, were rather decimated by our diseases and our illnesses. So yeah. they weren't able to put up a fight, whereas Japan could. Yeah. And another reason why they wanted to trade there is because they were already trading. They've been trading for ages in China for coal. There's lots of coal in China. Um, uh, so yeah. they wanted a stop off in Japan because they always saw it and they were like, well, can we just stop there? Uh, <laughs> Every well. time they go why past it and there's a big there? closed sign hanging off, uh, yeah. off a really big sign nearby it. Yeah. And also, like American whalers, it wasn't just the Japanese who were whaling, it was also the, the Americans. So there was quite a, a bustling, as I say, this is a global time period you know this is the, the beginning of the modern global world. trade routes are happening all the way around japan and everyone yeah. on those trade routes are eyeing up japan as this weird place that doesn't allow anyone which would be a perfect location yeah uh, a perfect stop off along the trade routes now matthew perry the man okay this is where i think he gets it right and where the, everyone else before and after him gets it wrong okay he he had extensive diplomatic experience although ironically he was never actually a diplomat he was always a, a naval officer um mm. but he he wasn't he wasn't some jumped up toff he was very much a guy who was there on merit um uh, yeah uh he unlike his uh, sort of successes in say afghanistan perry actually read up on japan and their culture before <laughs> leaving on his mission and he saw wow, so he he yeah. definitely didn't learn from the British then, because that's definitely not something we ever did. <laughs> no, but the thing is, there have been at least 27 American ships before this who had failed to get access to Japan's ports. So he realized there was clearly a problem. Um, mm. So he took he took his time. He read up on Japan. He spoke to Dutch diplomats, because the Dutch, as I say, were the only Europeans who had access and a, a, still a relationship with these people for as mm. long as 200 years before anyone else had, because it had wow. been that long. So, you yeah. know, a different time period. 
So one of the things he picked up on was how important gift giving was in their society. So he took along with him, these are the gifts they, he brought. He bought 40 <laughs> rifles, 20 percussion, 20 percussion pistols, 20 artillery swords, 20 muskets, 40 light cavalry swords, and 100 Colt revolvers with 4,000 rounds of ammunition. So how American yeah. can you get? That is so American. What do they need? Guns. They want our guns. That's yeah. what we need to impress them with. I mean, you know, they were very good at building guns. So yeah. play to your strengths, but still a bit weird. It is a bit, isn't it? Um, but you also might be thinking, uh, listener, and Patrick, I'm sure, um, that he's setting off on this journey, maybe on a, a railroad going across to the, uh, the West Coast and picking up a ship and then crossing the Pacific. No, 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 no. As I mentioned, we, there are yeah. no deep ports, and no there's way. a reason why he didn't go down the Panama Canal because it wasn't fucking built until 1881. Yeah. So that was 30 years later. So what? So he think? goes all the way round. He left on the 24th of November, 1852, from Hampton Roads, Virginia, which, if <laughs> anyone doesn't know, is on the northeast coast of North America, and mm. he then crosses the Atlantic, stopping at Madeira. Then Santa Elena, and he's going due south, so he's kind of going southeast mm. down towards. Actually, you've got a map behind you, Patrick. I'm literally following it. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, down to Cape Town, then right round. Wow. To, yeah. Then down round to Mauritius, then to Ceylon, which is Sri Lanka, then Singapore, mm. Macau, Hong Kong, and finally to Shanghai before finally crossing over to speak to the Jesus. Japanese. Jesus, what a what a gap year. My that God! Was, do you know how long it took? Seven months and fourteen days. Jeez. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I assume that route is, although longer, easier to do than round South America, because there aren't big cities and and ports they can uh, benefit from. You could go round South America, but the problem was that the Pacific storms were still considered unnavigable not unnavigable uh, but it's still a tricky one whereas they it's knew a very the it's a very long way yeah yeah whereas atlantic easy everyone it was been established doing it for years. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that would have helped also with resupply there's more places to stop at to get fresh yeah, yeah 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 absolutely it probably yeah I, it does make more sense nowadays they would go around there although nowadays they wouldn't make that journey but they'd probably get a flight God, what a what a <laughs> what a ball ache I know. all that way yeah. Um, so uh, the, the ships that he was sent with, he had a flotilla of four ships. Remember, this is the when the Americans were still. I think the whole fleet in in, in the whole of America was twenty ships large. So they sent wow. four of them with him, and uh, later on he'll have as many as nine. But that was it. There was never more than that <laughs> many. Um, and what's yeah. interesting is these aren't the days of ironclad battleships. Mm. His flagship was the Mississippi, and it was a paddle-wheeled steamship. What? Yep. And that can cross the Atlantic? Yep. Steam was, Whoa. before they um, made diesel engines, steam was what was used. And that's what Oh, I just assumed it was going to be by sail, but I guess they're no. more advanced than that. It's they're in that weird period boat. between the two. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, so um, he had, as I said, four ships. They're all steam paddles, uh, sorry, paddle-wheeled steamships. Uh, mm. they, they, he had with him the Susken... I always get this wrong. He had with him uh, the Suske, Suskehanna, Saratoga, mm -hmm. Plymouth, and then the Mississippi. And they were Plymouth. four ships. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, Plymouth being uh, where the first... American Plymouth, American yeah, yeah, not Plymouth. Plymouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, long story short, these guys finally uh, make it to the South China Sea. Okay. And this is where the next incredible stroke of like genius on his part. I'm a big fan of Matthew Perry because although he's a bit controversial, I really mm. think he did this the right way. So He was smart remember, about it. Remember I, uh, I, I mentioned the, Ry the Ryukyu Islands that I can't pronounce? Yes. They, they're, the, they're the ones who are sort of owned by China. They're sort yeah, of like south of, of Japan. Halfway, yeah, halfway in between them. That yeah, yeah, they 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 were kind of the ones that had a bit of open trade. Yeah. So yeah. he lands there first, and Rikuyu ah. at the time is ruled by a king. Why would you purposefully land on a sovereign state like that? Apart from just it's, because it, you're the Americans and that's what you do. It's like a Japan light. You know, it's right. easing your way in there. Yeah. 
goes to the top of the class, Patrick Courtney. This is a test <laughs> run. Because it has wow. um, much better channels of communication to Japan, he is mm. showing off that he's coming. This is like the trailer. Ah, so yeah. And so because, you know, Japan finding out about his coming is difficult because you can't send anything there. But they would know what's going on in yeah. this small kingdom. So by showing up there, and I guess showing that he can be uh, a dutiful guest who gives what? gifts, who's uh, worth it. Hang on oh, a second. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> what he does, he basically bluffs his way into landing onto the islands, the main island, right. with 200 troops, which actually is quite a lot. This is in a time mm. of a small, where you have small armies. Um, and he lands and, and he requests an audience with the king. And he refuses to speak to any lower officials at all. And and so Baller. you can just imagine these Ryukyu like islanders coming up and going, sorry, what are you doing? And the guy just turns around and you know what he does? Those 200 troops he brings onto the beach, he starts yeah. to drill them in sort of marching and wow. he just spends six hours drilling them. That's what he does. He doesn't listen to these like lower officials. <laughs> just... He just goes, come back to me with the king. Meanwhile, yeah. we're going to prepare. Don't know what for, but we're just going to prepare. Yeah, look how stylish we are with all of our neat yeah. uniforms and guns. Yeah, yeah. Um, so eventually, a high-ranking advisor to the king of Rikuyu Islands turns up, and uh, he actually does meet this guy. Perry does start talking to him, and he leaves with full trade rights with the Rikuyu Islands for America. Wow. Just like that. And he also made it clear that the US had no interest in harming anybody. He didn't shoot a single bullet. He lands, sure. he does a bit of drill, maybe plays a band, a bit of a tune, and then yeah. he, he then gets... So I'm just saying, that worked a lot better. What's that phrase? Uh, talk softly but carry a big stick? That's basically yeah. what he did. Showed well, up, it's... showed off how powerful they are, but didn't do anything, and then just went, yeah, I think we should have full rights. And they went, yeah, we probably should say yes. Yeah, but you know what's so interesting, I think, is he clearly realised that the Japanese have their own they, their own superiority complex, like Americans do. Instead mm. of treating them like barbarians and sort of, oh, they're beneath us, he had to show that he was on a level with the Japanese ah, hierarchy. yes. That's what he's doing here. I he's mean, especially showing... as, you know, they've locked off the rest of the world, presumably because they think they are better than the rest of the world. They don't want to be dealing with these weird foreigners who are ruining everything. Precisely. So he needs to prove that this new... And it's interesting that actually the first people to get through are a country that didn't exist when they locked it down, which almost benefits them. They're new guys. They're the new guys on the block. So Japan is like, we don't know about them. We yeah. weren't, you know, we didn't have any issues of them in the past that caused us to do it because they didn't exist. Yeah. They probably no longer consider them British or anything like that because enough time's passed. So they're like, got to find out what these guys are like. And this guy knows what he's doing and like it's like first impressions for a country yeah because it it's a new country yeah, no it's a first impression knowing. yeah oh that's so weird and cool so what happens he then gets back on the ships and eventually reaches on the 8th of july as i was with the walkthrough um the entrance to Edo bay and what does he do do you think he waits politely does he fuck he enters <laughs> he literally orders his ships to enter past the the blockade it isn't really a blockade but like the the into the bay he just walks he basically just goes right into the middle and i mean he... what are they going to do they can send their boats that have massive holes in them like they're not i guess they're not really prepared to deal with ships well not like these ones maybe because this mm. is the thing um they're known as the black ships because they're black holes they've got black um bottoms and they because they're copper i think or there's mm. something to do with that and they're steam so they don't have steam ships in, yes. in the fleet, yeah, in the yeah. Japanese fleet. Um, so what he does is he orders all of his uh, his steamers to fire blank shots from every single gun, which is what Ido uh, Hiramichi hears. So wow. they fire 73 guns, just fire. And when you're going into a bay, that's got a real, you know, mm, it's a real echoes like, round. Yeah, yeah. of we are here kind of thing. So what happens... Wow. That sort of scramble for chaos was the Japanese guard boats. All they basically just launch as many ships as they can and swarm the the, the U.S. So they think. I mean, it, they'd realize, I guess, quite quickly that nothing's been hit. But they could think they're under attack because it was a cannon fire. Like they know what gunpowder sounds like. They know what cannon sounds like. So yeah, and also they, they don't kind of think they're under attack. This is a bit Ugh. like aliens landing. 
it's so like alien to have like... it is so much like it but hopefully i mean if aliens ever do land here hopefully it is as you know they fire blanks as well <laughs> i mean i hope it goes like this to be honest um yeah, but, yeah. but anyway he so he tells his men to repel anyone who tries to board but not to strike first so this guy is just knows his shit like this is yeah. so good if he fires a shot he's fucked because he's got four they will ships. just yeah yeah like, he's he after like he's ruined on his he's destroyed his mission because now Japan thinks of America as just this weird maniac force that came in and tried to kill them. Yeah, and he'll probably get killed. Yeah. So, uh, and as he as he's uh, he does this, um, they put a sign out in French, telling him to leave at once because they don't have anything else. They don't know if it's the French. They have no fucking idea. But they, of course, mm. they thought it was the French. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> but they ignore this, and eventually they try and send out lots of different officials. And he basically goes, "Nope, not listening." He does the same thing as he did with the Rakuyu Islands. He's like, "No, yeah. I'm only talking to someone of rank." And it's a good finally, job he didn't. Yeah, I would have imagine if he started with, "I only want to talk to the emperor," and all of them go, "You can't ooh. talk to the emperor." Like that wouldn't. <laughs> that's what you've gone way too high there. <laughs> but of course, he'd read up on Japan. He knows how it works. Um, yeah, so finally, yeah. uh, an official is allowed aboard, and this guy was from the walkthrough. It's Ido Hiromichi. So he's ah, this great administrator, wow. and he's mm. allowed on deck with an interpreter. But does Perry meet him? Does he fuck? He stays in his <laughs> cabin the whole time and sends God. out a captain called Franklin to, to meet and debate with him. Such a power move. <laughs> God, he's so into the power moves, isn't he? Now, the official does what he follows party lines. And he says, you've got to go down to Nagasaki and treat with us through the Dutch. Because that's the only, that's how, that's kind of always been the way. For the right, yeah, yeah. Years. Um, but they were like, no, absolutely not. No, nope, not happening. And then Perry then threatens to land his troops and march on Edo. So he is like, he's like, no, wow. I have the power. Big stick. He's got, yeah, he's got 200 soldiers, which isn't massive. But like, because they've got guns and because they're this otherworldly people it's like shit um at this point it's also showing that confidence you know the the japanese officials they don't know the capabilities of these people so no. even though realistically perry is probably thinking if i can't actually attack i will lose like as much as 200 people with guns could be effective we don't have a battle plan we don't know the city <laughs> no. there's no chance he could win but it's just that it's it's that confidence to say i will attack and the yeah. people are like, oh, my God, if he's going to say that, he must have an idea. And who knows what he could do? Well, at one point, he actually threatens to send um, off for 100 more ships with 18,000 <laughs> men. And what's funny about that is there were only 48 ships in the entire U.S. Navy at the time. Jeez. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, but that comes later. At this point, uh, Hiramichi leaves and feels quite humiliated. And he writes a letter back to the shogun, or rather to Abe Masahiro, who is running the country, mm. the chief of staff, saying that his forces, we still have this letter, that his forces were simply inadequate to repel the Americans by force. So clearly, this wow. is what a deteriorated state the uh, the mm. Tokugawa shogunate is in. It's in a completely crippled by corruption, a weak uh, mm. ruler and a weak emperor as well. Like you are not in a good position here at all. It's not. It's not Tokugawa Ieyasu or God forbid Oda Nobunaga dealing with these people. It's it's a weakened state who who are, right. are easily scared. So. This is where they make the worst mistake, the Tokugawa Shogunate. Mm. Abe Masahiro doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He calls a vote from <laughs> all of the daimyo to decide on what to do. Now, maybe... Like a today, referendum? Yes, he calls a referendum, basically. Today, that would be great. That would be, oh, that's so democratic. Back then, two problems. First of all, not only do you look indecisive, but you look yeah. dangerously weak as well. Also a thing that happens in modern day. Yes, but back when they yeah. had samurai swords, this is a lot worse of a situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't yeah, want to yeah. look weak. It's, it's giving power back to the daimyo. Because something that we talked about in the last episode was so much about the Tokugawa Shogunate was about consolidating power to the shogun and yeah. re like reducing the power of these daimyo. And this, this is giving is it all opposite. back. This is saying, I want you guys to decide for me, yeah. but I still want to be in charge. Now, yeah, so exactly. So after six days, first of all, that was really stupid because what happened was you got uh, literally a complete split vote down the middle where you have the like, indecisive. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it looks awful. So this takes six days. So, But on the 14th of July, so you arrived on the 8th, on the 14th of July, 
Um, Abe Masahiro allows Perry to land and deliver his letter from President Fillimore to the Shogun. And of course, he's giving it to Abe Masahiro because Abe Masahiro is the real Shogun, really, or at least he has the power. Uh, So Perry lands, and I just love the landing. So he lands at Kurohama Beach, which, and he was the first, must have been one of the first non-Japanese people to do so in over 200 years. So he's already Mm -hmm. got further than anyone else. He lands with 250 sailors and marines with a 13-gun salute from one of his ships, whilst uh, his band plays Hail Columbia, which is kind of like the de facto um, national anthem, as Mm. Perry leaves the deck and goes down the thing. You can just imagine it. (laughs) Oh, my God. The balls on this guy. He's brilliant. I I see why you like him. He's just like... He's, I mean, he's, I mean, presumably he's all talk, but when the talk is this good and he knows how to impress, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. matter. The big stick is irrelevant. It's the talk. He's just so good at this. And so long as he doesn't put a foot wrong, he's going to fucking get away with it. I mean, yeah, he's on a tight wire. Like, he could accidentally say something wrong, they get in a fight and he loses, but he's just got the, he's got, he's got the swagger. So he's he's got the he, he's got the swagger of a new country. I mean, America kind of this really does embody America. This isn't how the British or the French or the Chinese or any of these older nations would do it because it's all no, it's tied too- up and stuff. It's a new country that's really like showing off. They know they're not, they don't have the 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 power to back it up so yeah. they're all they're just but they're just neither do the Americans the America he's talking out of his ass. He hasn't. Mm, he mm. just. He's got manifest destiny on his side. He's got that idea that we are meant to do this. It's kind of yeah. like that. Um, so, but anyway, yeah. he's received. Just to finish, he he's received formally by the same guy, Ido Hiromichi, who's kind of like this de facto sort of lackey for uh, for Abe Masahiro. Um, yeah. So he takes the letter straight to his boss, Masahiro, and then afterwards, Perry spends three days resupplying and then heads up for China, saying he'll return in for a reply in one year. So he's going to stay oh in the local God. area. But he doesn't. God, that is of, that. Yeah, that's the um, that's the like confident uh move. Like if you're trying to like I don't know convince some of someone, you really need, you need to play hard to get. He's playing hard to get. He, he showed up, shown off, given the letter, and said maybe I'll come back and yeah. and and hear your reply. Who knows? Maybe a year. Maybe whatever. See what happens. Absolutely. God. So listen, the aftermath of this is earth shattering for Japan. Mm. Tokugawa Ieyoshi dies within days after Perry leaves, just wow. either in shock or whatever. Um, then his government falls, um, but that th- this happens a bit later, actually, to be fair. This happens about five years later, but it's the beginning of the end of the Tokugawa shogunate. And wow. of all things, to change it was um, the... Uh, actually, I'll come to that in a second. Uh, but what's quite funny is Perry leaves, right? And then he's thinking, oh, I've done a really good job. And then he gets news that a Russian vice admiral has just Mm. arrived at Nagasaki, completely coincidentally, seeking a similar trade agreement as the one that Perry wants exclusive rights to in America. And it turns out the British and the French have gone in with the Russians. So they want to (gasps) stop... But they're all doing it the the way they're supposed to do it and going to Nagasaki. But, 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 But Perry is fucking nervous about this. So he then turns around pretty quickly picks up a few more ships any ships he can grab basically yeah. and he, he yeah. has now eight ships and 1600 men and he comes back into Edo Bay on the 8th of March 1854 with about uh, with 500 men on his own ship and formally he basically where he'd been flirting before if that's what you can call it he was mm-hmm. now like no we are doing this now so he then formally negotiates a trade rights agreement between Japan and the United States of America and he offers more gifts, including a model steam engine train toy to the, to the Shogun. Um, <laughs> wow. And, and the, the Americans are granted access to two ports in Japan, Shimoda and Hakodate. And they got to trade from there. And he built a U.S. consulate and then left and came home. And, wow. Uh, yeah. And he got rewarded $20,000 for his, for, his, uh, for his thing, which back then was a, a lot of money. Earned it. I tell yeah. you, earned it. That's he amazing. Fucking- Dom, I mean, well, that. think of the money he would make America. Like opening up, tra- opening up an entire country for trade. Yeah. Is, that's like wealth on a scale that most people, like no one, really understands because it, it could be in today's money, it's trillions. 
of yeah. like full trade and that's probably you know equiv- maybe not quite but similar equivalency back then it's it is it is remarkable and he is mm. one man who's done this and after that um basically the Tokugawa shogunate as i say it collapses and who comes to pick up the pieces the emperor so suddenly ah. after being sort of very sort of shit for a very very long time suddenly the magi he's called the magi the Magi. his name is magi um mm. the magi restoration it's called he basically becomes the the embodiment of japan japan trying to get off its knees again and and then uh, he takes back control from the shogun so the shogun go and you have imperial japan from there so it's because of wow. this expedition japan and tokyo flip and suddenly they open up and honestly innovation just drives through like they make like uh ships ironclad ships in like the decade after this happens and before wow. they had ships that couldn't even go ocean bearing so it's the beginning of the birth of modern japan comes from this smashing down the door by the u.s <laughs> so yeah wow that's so that- interesting i mean obviously and many people know but the 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 history between united states and japan is checkered to put it lightly but it's so amazing that this is the beginning of their of their relationship yeah and it's seemingly a very good one and actually america <laughs> triggered them weirdly triggered them to throw off the shackles of their dictatorial rulers to replace them with their older dictatorial rulers it's i mean it's kind of american but also not kind of american (laughs) they didn't mean to do that there was this is like proper capitalism in your face kind of stuff this Mm. is like venture capitalism gone mad but anyway that is my story and i hope you guys enjoyed listening to it i loved that i mean what a guy commodore commodore wasn't it commodore Commodore. matthew perry yes what a legend and yeah, yeah you're right a really i mean he did his homework that is how to negotiate you know learn about the other people i guess show off a bit how powerful you are but make no moves to be aggressive really just be all talk and just have the confidence to i mean he could he could write a, a book about selling and you know he could write an art of the deal and, <laughs> yeah, do, and write a much better one because that's that's phenomenal and i love that you know because they're american and they're bold and they're extravagant you know they go right for Edo even yeah. though they're not supposed to whereas the Russians and the French and the British all line up in Nagasaki as they're supposed to you know they go to the right place and they do everything formally and are completely blown out of the water by these by the plucky Americans. upstarts yeah, I yeah. love it it's such a good story when I when I heard about it it's I'm sure if there are any Japanese listeners or anyone who studied Japan this is a very mm. obvious story to tell but yeah. I had never heard of it. And actually, I think it does open up Japan to the modern world. So it really is the birth of modern Japan. So I thought it was a good one to end on for Japan. Yeah, really, um, sorry, really for good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Edo, yeah. And Edo. great to yeah. yeah, great to kind of compare to uh, last week's episode where we discussed when it was still really in the depths of feudal Japan. And yeah, uh, yeah and obviously completely cut off from the rest of the world. Exactly. Which is, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's a very cool story. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening, uh, listener. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Next week, we will be going to our final city of this series. Um, Patrick, Mm. do you want to tell us about it? We are going to a city, I think, uh, across Europe is a beloved city. We are going to Venice, which is a fascinating city. It's more... It's more our bread and butter, to be honest. I think after going to Baghdad and Tokyo, which are really pushing ourselves out there in our historical research. research. Yeah, yeah. Venice is obviously something we know, we already know quite a bit about. And kind of a nice one, actually, to end on, because it is, again, uh, features heavily in the Assassin's Creed video games, which is what kicked off this podcast to begin with. Yeah. So, yeah, look forward to that. Venice is obviously a really interesting city. I mean, it's geographically a fascinating city just because it is so much of it is built on water. Um, but yeah, it has a really interesting history and we've got some really cool stories to talk about. So look forward to that. Cool, yeah. See you next time, listener. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>